Amen. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, there are as many different paths in here as there are people. We've all walked a different path to lead us to this one place and this one moment to gather here in response to your promise that where we gather in your name, you will be here in our midst. And so we've come to you from all different roads, but here we are, and we just recognize that we don't make good lords of our life. Some of us realize that more than others. Some of us are painfully learning that the hard way. I pray, Lord, you would convince us of that in this moment, and you would help us just all raise our white flag to you and surrender and say to you that you are the, not only the maker of my soul, but the lover of my soul, and that you can tend to my soul, you can provide for my needs in ways that this world can't, and I certainly can't. So God, help us give ourselves more fully to you so that we might be able to receive you more fully in ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, the New York Post called him the envy of Wall Street, a private equity pioneer worth $2 billion, Harvard graduate, avid fine art collector, respected philanthropist, and golf buddy of the uh, Clintons. He had five children, two grandchildren, and a wife of 27 years. He's a man who, by the standards of the American dream, had practically gained the whole world. And a week ago this past Thursday, Thomas Lee walked into the sixth floor of his Manhattan office, pulled a Smith & Wesson uh, revolver out of his desk drawer, at around noon, and killed himself, thereby revealing that you really can't judge a person's inside by a person's outside, can you? The, the world inside of a person bears no necessary resemblance to the world outside the person. That inner invisible world of the soul can evade all of the illusions of the the outer world of appearances, no matter what it's surrounded with, whether castles and, you know, sky rises and billions of dollars and fame and popularity, possessions and power and all the rest. You can have it all and be utterly empty inside. A, A person can be rich with the treasures of the world, power and possessions and pleasures, and be, and be completely impoverished to the treasures of the soul, love, joy, and peace. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
He who saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You know, there are days that I wake up and like anyone else, I have struggles in my faith. I struggle to believe the claims of my faith, struggle to believe the claim that I'm a child of God and citizen of God's kingdom, that Jesus one day is literally and physically going to come back to this world and literally and physically raise my dead body from the grave. That's a hard thing to sometimes believe and to wrap my head and heart around. There are days when Jesus' commands of self-denial and taking up my cross seem vague and distant and impractical, and, uh, but when I read a headline in the article I read about Thomas Lee, and I really reflect on what this world has to offer, what is really practical and what really isn't, sometimes, like today, Jesus' words hit my heart like a defibrillator waking up my comatose soul. And today is one of those days. Today, Jesus' words don't seem so distant and inconsequential. Today they sound like a siren to me. They sound like a home security alarm going off at midnight. And I have to say, at least today, I have completely lost my faith, not in the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ, but in the kingdom of this sandcastle world and all its illusions, all its false advertising the seductive claims of a consumer culture, the empty promises of advertisers and influencers, the godless fear-mongering, fear-mongering among, and, and, and the incessant gossip of news media outlets, all of it, today at least I see it for what it, what it is. And today I am a cultural atheist. I'm declaring my faithlessness in our world and in our culture. Today, the, the words of Jesus, therefore, they don't sound, you know, the, it can sound harsh. Deny yourself. Like this is, the, this is the prerequisite for following Jesus. It begins with deny yourself, take up your cross. That doesn't sound like anything any of us want to do. But today, I think I hear them in a different light. They don't sound like cold demands of a tyrannical overlord. Not that I ever heard him necessarily like that. But, but they sound like an urgent warning and an earnest plea by the lover and maker of our soul calling us to himself to turn from our daily and often mundane, not necessarily grandiose pursuits of, of this world, of pursuing gain in this world. What did Jesus say? What does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Now, most of us are not going to gain the world like Thomas Lee. We're just not as good as it as he, at it as he was. But in our daily and mundane pursuits, to, to follow this world's false advertisements, we can step by step lose touch with our soul. And, and I hear Jesus' words as a warning and a plea 
so that, so that we would return to him so that we don't, one of us, you know, another of us succeed in, in gaining the whole world and therefore losing our soul in our pursuit of gains. And we, all, we all will lose touch with our soul, with that inner world in us to the degree that we, we are caught up with the distractions and the, the deceptions of the world outside of us. The more we allow the world to determine our pursuits rather than God himself, because he actually does tell us how to journey through this world and, and, and how to live in this world. And so often we think of God's commands as Basically, God commands us to do whatever we don't naturally want to do. <laughs> he, wants to, he wants to make sure we live the life that we don't actually want. That's not the biblical perspective of God's commands. In fact, the biblical sp- perspective of God's commands is that following God's commands is the only way you can actually get what you want out of life. And the, and, and, and the biblical perspective, as we'll see, is that the, the, the biggest deceiver in your life is the desires of your own heart, which are a world apart from the longings of your soul, which you lose touch with over time. And, and in fact, the Paul says in the book of Galatians that the desires of the flesh, that's what I mean when I say desires of the heart, the desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit. You know, as a believer, when God put his spirit in you, You can think of that as God putting his desires in you, both for you and for everyone else. That's why God's desire in you takes the form of patience, kindness, gentleness, so on, on the road to love, joy, and peace. But he says the desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit. And those desires of the flesh, your natural desires that are warped and twisted, they're actually designed, Paul says in Galatians 5, to keep you from doing what you want. What sense does that make? Isn't a desire precisely what I want? Well, you're conflicted. You know? You want to, it's like Paul in Romans 7, you want to do what's ultimately good for everyone, for your family, for your wife, for your spouse, but you also really want to be right. You know? You also don't want to admit that you were wrong. We have conflicting desires. And, and, and over time, we can lose touch with not just these surface desires, but the deep longings of our soul. And, 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 and we can become convinced by the deception of this world that, that the more we get from the world, the more power we have over people, the more we get our way, the more we will actually satisfy those longings but it's just a facade. It's, 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 it's all exposed when a billionaire walks into his office and, and blows all our illusions to bits. Because we're confronted with the truth that the gains of the outer world, of pleasure and power and possessions, do not lead to the gains of the inner world, love, joy, and peace. So Ecclesiastes 1. Uh, go ahead and turn there. Ecclesiastes 1. And um, this is a, we're going to continue in this series through Lent, um, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I have to just confess, uh, (laughs) I struggled to find any 
edification out of this book in my first like 10 readings over the last few weeks. I don't know if you've read this book, but if you have, you'll understand. Because it seems to just do a a lot of deconstructing of my faith. It's this demolition project, it seems like. Um, And, you know, reading it over and over, I'm thinking, well, we already put it in the bulletin that we're going to do this series, so we're stuck with it. (laughs) But as I read it, it just, uh, by the, you know, you read it so many times, I started to feel like I was just a man standing on an empty lot with a broken down house, completely deconstructed. There was nothing, <laughs> no house to, 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 to live in, house of faith to live in. But in the past few weeks, that perspective hasn't, that, that image in my mind hasn't changed, but my perspective on it has Because I started to see there were a lot of things in my faith that really just constructed a house of cards. Some false dependencies that I had. And I think the point of this book is to strip your faith down to what your faith really consists of. You standing alone in this world with God. Right? That's not to say you are alone. Thank God for the gift of one another. But at the end of the day... What does your faith depend on? It depends on nothing but God, God himself. And it's, it's, it's like the psalmist says, when my flesh and my heart fail, you are my strength and my portion forever. And, and, and Ecclesiastes is trying to bring us down to that core reality of the substance of our faith, and I have begun to see the true wisdom of this book, and it really does offer something that no other book of the Bible offers, at least not in this way. It, it, is, it really is a ruthless demolition project, I think. Um, but it, it's a book that's not intended to, you, you don't think of it as a book intended to build up your faith in the God of the gospel so much as it is a book intended to tear down your faith in the God of this world. That's how Paul describes our relationship to the world in 2 Corinthians 4. That we actually make a God out of this world when we depend on it for the things that only God can give us. When we pursue out of it the things that only God can, can give to us. We make a God out of this world when we try to gain from it that which only comes from God. Love, joy, and peace. You're going to hear that as a refrain throughout. Because those are the deepest longings of your soul. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4. You see... The idea is that if we are blind to the glory of the gospel revealed in Jesus, who makes God accessible to us, and it makes God visible in a certain sense, that we see God when we see Jesus, when we imagine Jesus, when we read about Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, that, that we're actually able to, to, to know God in and through Jesus, But if the God of this world and its advertisers and its distractions can blind us from that glory, in other words, I just am not that 
impressed with God. I don't really care about God. I, I don't have time for God. God's not that practical in my everyday life. There are other glories in this world, you see. If we're blind to his glory, we are blind to the glory of the maker and lover of our soul. And in that case, we spend our life in pursuit of lesser glories, created glories, appeal, glory. Think of glory, the things you're attracted to, the things you pursue, the things you want to gain, okay? That's, that's how Paul describes, it's what Paul describes in Romans 1 as this is the nature, this is like the, our core sinful nature, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Exchanging the eternal longing of our souls that lead to love, joy, and peace in this life. Um, when we pursue God in this life, we exchange that for the fleeting desires of our flesh to pursue pleasure and power and possessions following our own will untethered from God's will. Because we will have pleasure and power and possessions. That's not the point. That's not the problem. Okay? The problem is pursuing those things as an end in themselves, making those things an idol that is our highest good, our highest value, our, our highest treasure, the treasure of our heart. Because then we will necessarily be led into disappointment, despair, and discontent, following our own will, untethered from God's. It will lead, it can lead to pleasure and power and possessions, but it may lead us also to the, you know, in this life. But it may lead us to, to the kind of life that ends like the one we read about when we began. A life of someone who had it all on the outside and had nothing on the inside. So, Ecclesiastes 1 begins with, the, it's the first half of Jesus' question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What, what is there to be gained in the world? That's the question Ecclesiastes 1 begins with. And then the rest of the book really seeks to answer it. But it answers it. It, it, it answers this question, what is there to be gained in this world? It answers that question by following one man's journey. Solomon, King Solomon, son of David, following his journey of, of practically gaining the whole world. And, and as he's journeying through the world, he's journaling about the world. And he's journaling about what he has found on the other side of his pursuits, once he's possessed them or enjoyed them or whatever. And so by the end of the book, you end up with a kind of map of the world, but also a kind of cartography of the soul. He's explo we're exploring the world and Solomon's soul, and it's under, of course, the inspiration of the Spirit. So it's supposed to show you something about your own soul as well. And, and it's a kind of map-making uh, work of the soul, so that by the end, he actually is going to come to the same conclusion about the world as Thomas Lee does. He, he will show us that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy the longings of our soul. Yet, he will show us that the longing of, longings of the soul can be satisfied, in fact. But not by this world. 
by its maker, the same one who happens to be the maker of our soul. And, and we can journey through this world in pursuit of him, even in pursuit of happiness, you could say. Because uh, don't over-spiritualize happiness. I think happiness is one aspect of joy. But, it, but it's, it's true happiness, soul happiness. And, and we can pursue that without losing our soul. So there are gains we can pursue without losing our own soul, is what I'm saying. So I need you to just, before we read the text, I need you to just recognize, this is my really fancy graphic today, okay? I need you to recognize that you as a human being are always participating in two worlds. You have an inner world and an outer world. And the relationship between these two is not self-evident. And, and there is a lot of deception in, in I mean, that, that is what our culture is essentially built on, is this deception, is that you can access and provide for the needs of your inner world by finding stuff in this outer world or position in this outer world or power in this outer world. And it's a lie. It's not true. You know it. Ask yourself, what has led you to love, joy, and peace? Has it been anything that can be bought on the market? You know, how did that promotion satisfy the deep longings of your soul? Are you better now? Is, your, is all your desire satisfied now? You know? And so I want you to orient yourself to God's word by answering a simple question that only you can answer. Namely this, how is it with your soul this morning? Your inner world, what's going on? What's, what, what do you identify in your presence? The presence of mind and presence of heart. What's going on? Is there, you know, a tornado, you know? Or is it a calm day on the beach? What is it? What's it like inside of you? you only you can answer that. This book wants to address that. It, what, is, what is going on in that part of you that's least visible to everyone else and most visible to you? It's least tangible to everyone else and most noticeable to you. Right? It's that part of you that only you know and God knows. You, and, and you know that, as well as I do, that, that we can deceive everyone about, about what's going on inside of us by, by decorating all the stuff on the outside, can't you? We all can. So, so let's, allow, let's allow God's word to disillusion us, you know? Let's allow the illusions to be brought down, the house of cards to fall, so that from there we can actually move forward in faith and, and see what God may want to build back. So, um, read with me, beginning in verse 1 uh, of chapter 1. It says this, The words of the teacher uh, could be translated preacher. It's the word in... Uh, it's the word that is related to assembly, but the idea is this is a teacher of an assembly. Um, but the words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. 
Now, just briefly, I want to say this word vanity, that if you open up 10 translations of the Bible, you'll get 10 different words. It's a metaphor. It literally means vapor or breath. And in Hebrew, typically, when they're, they're combined... To communicate a concept, they'll use concrete words, like metaphors, rather than uh, conceptual words like vanity or meaningless or whatever. And that's how this typically gets translated, vanity, meaningless, ephemerality, like temporalness. Uh, it's because it's used in all those ways throughout the book. So just know this word, it has many dimensions to it. But the literal, if you want to imagine it, the literal word is breath or vapor. What is a breath? A breath is really important, but it's less than instant. You know, it's temporal. It's the sustenance of life, but, you know, it lasts only for a moment. And so it's like a vapor in that sense. It's fleeting. So he says, vanity of vanity, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is vanity. He woke up on the wrong side of bed, it sounds like. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So that's the question. Like I said, it, it begins with a question similar to, to the one Jesus asked. What is there to be gained? What is there to be gained? And this word, toil... It is actually, it's actually used, the same word in different forms is used three times in this text. It's used as a verb and a noun. What, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word is amal, and in the verbal form, it means toil, labor, work, or try strenuously. So get the sense of it. It's about your effort. What can you get out of life by your striving? And then the noun form is is gain, wealth, fortune, or even means. It's interesting that it can be used as kind of a mean, like a means to an end. And the idea being that all your, all your gains really are means to an end. You buy a, you know, a PlayStation because you think it will make you happy. You bought it as a means to your happiness. That's the sense of it. And so what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils? The, it, the sense of it is, the, the, the toil is the squeeze and the gain is the juice. So the question is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the, is the juice of your labor, okay, or the juice of your life worth, worth the squeeze of your labor? That's what he's asking. You get it? So, so it's, it's wanting you to take an, an assessment of where your efforts, your labors are invested and then ask yourself, is it getting me what I actually want? Like really want? Really want? Is it leading to a life of love and belonging, of joy and gratitude, of peace and contentedness? Because if it's not, maybe, maybe we have the wrong perspective on our labor. Maybe we're, tr we're expecting too much out of our labor. Or maybe we're looking for something in our labor that our labor just can't provide. So he takes us on a journey following nothing but his desires as his compass. So it begins with this, this exploration through the world of 
trying to answer this question, what is there to be gained? And he's going to follow his heart. He's going to follow the, the, the 21st century Western culture, you know, axiom that follow your heart in the pursuit of happiness, and that's the, the only way to find satisfaction in this life. And read with me a little bit of, of what exactly he's going to, he's going to find in this pursuit. And so, well, uh, there's a summary of the list. But he spells it out in chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. <laughs> I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. What's guiding him? His own heart is guiding him. And how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I made male and female slaves. Uh, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions and herds of flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and tre the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, but many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. The most punchable guy ever, right? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, he's buying people, you know? He's got, he's got the skyscraper of his day. He's in power over people. He's a ruler of a nation. He has many concubines. He's a sleazeball, you know? He has everything his heart wants. And what, what does he conclude about this? I mean, it is the life. This is the model life that, that everybody is, is, is seduced by. And he concludes this. Then I considered that all, all that my hands had done and all the toil I had spended, expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained. So he had spent his life top of the success in terms of production, consumption, pleasure, power, possessions, knowledge, wealth. Looking back on his life, what did it all add up to? What did all that gain add up to? The, the Hebrew word is nothing, which means nothing, okay? <laughs> it added up to nothing. That's what he gained from it all. The desires of, of his flesh untethered led to nothing, <laughs> literally. Empty pursuits, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and despair. But I want you to notice this. What about those deeper longings. Because it turns out he did discover some things along the way. What about the longings of the soul that we've been talking about? Love, joy, peace. Love is intimacy and belonging, joy, gratitude and happiness, peace, contentment, 
I would say trust. Trust, peace is related to trust in the sense that you walk with a sense that it's going to be okay, even if it's not okay. That's what peace is about. A peace that passes understanding is the way Paul describes it in Philippians. Well, listen to what he says. Before he concludes nothing, he, he says, my heart took delight or enjoyment, come back to that word, in all my toil. Hmm. And this was the reward for all my toil. What was the reward for all my toil? That I delighted in all my toil. In other words, he, he, we're starting to get a, to a sense of where he's going with this. He's saying, look, in all of your pursuits of gain, don't look for joy in gaining, in, in, in the product of your pursuit. Look for joy in the pursuit itself. It, don't look for joy at what your labor can produce. Look for joy in the labor itself. And that's starting to sound a little bit like good news. Because if your joy and the rest is contingent upon you successfully producing, you know, something of your labor, then it's always on the other side of what could potentially be produced. But he's saying, actually, there's a joy that's available in the process of life itself. And he builds on this, Okay. Oh, there it is. There's nothing better. So this is, again, him reflecting on life. Old man now, looking back, what was good, okay? He's looking back and says, there's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. It's, a, it's an interesting statement, isn't it? That he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. And that is, that's actually from the King James because they translate it literally. There's a lot of misconstruals of this in other translations. But it literally, he literally says, there's nothing better than that a man should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. Now already you're starting to see that there's a judgment about what's good and, and this assertion to the self that, look, there are good things and bad things. And my desire is to follow some bad things. Raise your hand if you've been there. I have, okay? I know what it's like to desire bad things. And I know what it's like to say to myself, I can't do that. That won't lead me to anywhere good. And what he's saying is, sometimes we ha there is a self that has to deny the self, right? That's what Jesus said, isn't it? If you want to come after me, let you deny yourself and take up your cross. Well, what is the self that's denying the self, okay? He's saying you need to have some self-confrontations and you need to tell your soul to enjoy what's good. Okay, I did this with, with, with olives. Okay, this is super random and it wasn't in my notes, but I, I noticed that there, there are a lot of people who, who seem to know a lot about food that really like olives and I always hated olives growing up. And so I determined that I am going to eat olives until I like them. And you know what? It actually worked. I love olives now, certain olives, good olives, okay? Because I told my soul, no, I told myself to enjoy good, okay? You can actually change your appetites. You can cultivate a taste for good. You can cultivate a taste for God. That's where he's going to take us. But this also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. What was from the hand of God? That he could enjoy the good in his labor, for apart from him who can eat 
or who can have enjoyment? You hear that? Apart from God, who can have enjoyment? Apart from God, who can have joy? Who is the source of joy? It can't be found in creation. It can only be found in the Creator, is what he's saying. For to the man who does good in his sight, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He's creating a completely different path to the things that we want. Every one of us has this deep desire, longing of the soul, love, joy, and peace. He's saying, don't follow the world's paths to get there. You won't actually arrive. Obey my commands, and I'll give it to you personally. As a reward, he says. Okay? And so, um, you see, Solomon is now turning... uh, He's turning from the, the juice of life he's able to squeeze out of this world to God himself, to, to the source of, of his longings. And he discovers there, there are certain things you just can't produce yourself, nor does the world offer for your consumption. And, and for that, you actually have to turn to God himself and receive it as a gift, right? Right? It, it, it is, it's received from God. Saw that it's from the hand of God. God gives it to those who do good in his sight. You see, it's a reward, you know. It's like you do something good, you get a reward. I'm thinking of my dogs right now, and that's probably a bad analogy, right? But he's trying to say, you do this and you receive something good. And, and it's not like, it's, it's not petty though like that. Because there's too much at stake when we don't follow God's commands, right? We make a wreck of not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. So in other words, the fullness of life in God's world is gift, not gain. The fullness of life comes as gift, not as gain. The gift of God, by the way, this doesn't take away all of the observations of the vanity. I mean, he blends it right in there with the statement. It's all still vanity, he says. The gift of God doesn't make the vanity and emptiness of the world go away, but it does make life in an empty world enjoyable. It it does mean that, you know what, we are all going to have the same assessment at the end of our life looking back and realize, ah, we're about to die, you know. But we don't have to die in despair, We can look back on fondness about the joy that was available for the time it was, and we can even maybe die in peace. So he he then goes on to spell out where all the confusion comes from, and then we'll we'll start to shut it down. Okay, we're going to be in this, developing this single uh, depressing idea for the whole of Lent, so... (laughs) So we will take more of a survey approach to the book, but but he does actually pinpoint where the confusion of the human experience comes comes from, the situation we find ourselves in. And I want you to think of it like this. Don't mishear me. It's an analogy, kind of, it's metaphorical language. But you can think of this. So much of the confusion of your life comes from the fact that you are an immortal creature who is dying. You're an immortal creature who's dying. So I'm not saying you're immortal because you're dying, but I am saying you're immortal in the sense that 
You were not created for death. You were not created to live in a world where you have to let go of life and everything in this life. And he explains it like this. What, again, he asks the question, what gain has a worker from his toil? I've seen that the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in, his, in its time. Also, he has placed, he has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? He's placed eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out the work God has done from beginning to end. He has placed eternity in man's heart. We are immortal creatures. You have an eternal soul. God has given you an, a spirit that will not ultimately die. He's placed this eternal dimension in your heart and actually given you an infinite appetite. So even if you literally could consume the whole world, you still get hungry in a few days, okay? You have been given an appetite for God himself. He's placed eternity in your heart. And the, the fundamental problem of our sinful nature and what Paul, the problem with what Paul calls the desires of our flesh is that they turn us away from an infinite God in eternal life to try to find satisfaction in a fleeting world of futile pursuits. So, so we are extremely vulnerable to the, to the false advertising of this world. Be, because, think about it, we're all sitting ducks. W the problem with your desires and mine is twofold, based on this and other observations. Your desires are both infinite, place eternity in our hearts, and ignorant. That's a bad combination. They're infinite and they're ignorant. Why do I say they're ignorant? Well, one, human history. Two, it's what begins the question. He's asking the question because he doesn't know. What gain is there? What can I get out of life? They're, they're ignorant in the sense that he even says, he placed eternity in our hearts so that we can't find the work God has done. In other words, we are, we are born into this mystery of what would possibly satisfy our souls. So our desires are infinite and ignorant. And that means we are sitting ducks for a world that constantly advertises satisfaction of all our desires. And, and that's what the enemy of our soul harnesses as leverage against us. The depictions of the devil you get on from Hollywood are so far, they're the opposite of, of what you should imagine. The, the book of Second Corinthians says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You want, a, you want a picture of the devil, a real picture of the devil? Looks like this. Okay? That's, that's, that's an angel of light. That's alluring, isn't it? That's Las Vegas. That's Sin City, right? And you see, it looks so beautiful, especially in the darkness. In fact, only in the darkness, it's so beautiful in the darkness, you'd almost forget what it really is in the light. A desert. Right? And, and, and that is a picture of, of the world's advertisements and where it leads to in our soul. 
That's false advertising. Who has ever left Las Vegas happy with the decisions they made, you know? <laughs> Thank God I went to Las Vegas. It's like G.K. Chesterton remarked. He's a British author. This is what he said when he went down Times Square, which is, you know, the advertising hub of the United States. All the lights are advertisements. He said this, when I had a look at the lights of Times Square by night, I said to my American friends, what a glorious garden of wonders this would be to anyone who was lucky enough to be unable to read. <laughs> you see, advertisers have been exploiting our God-sized appetite since, since the advent of, of advertising. And, and I'm not just talking about products. I mean, Think, be able, extrapolate a little. I'm talking about all the pursuits that you go after in, in, under the discretion of your own heart. When you use your own heart as your compass to, to guide yourself. This is, a, this is a, a, from a pamphlet from the head of marketing for GM, Charles Kettering, in 1929, at the advent of the, the advertising age. Here's what he said, Okay. This is, this is what the world has to offer. This represents what the world has to offer us, okay? The key to economic prosperity is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. If everyone were satisfied, no one would want to buy the new thing. Oh, do they know that? That's why your freaking iPhone cord doesn't match the port on this new, you know, right? It's planned obsolescence. <laughs> And you've got to have the new thing. And you will buy the new thing because you don't have satisfaction in your soul. And you're desperate for satisfaction. So this book exposes the truth of this world's false advertising. So I just want to end with the last words of the book. So this was kind of a survey of Ecclesiastes. The last words of Ecclesiastes. This is a... Um, Oh, this is not the, this is not, that's not true. This isn't the last words of the book. It should be because by this point in the sermon, I should be at the last. Um, uh, uh, I'm just going to read from the actual Bible. How about that? <laughs> okay. In the, he concludes with, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the days of evil come and the years draw near which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What he's saying is the youth really need to trust what he's saying as an old teacher lest you end up where learning the hard way. The rem remember youth, okay? Remember your creator in the days of your youth because the days of evil are going to come. And if you follow the world's false advertisements for possessions, power and money as a means to satisfying your soul, you are going to be embittered, resentful, despairing, disappointed, depressed when you arrive. That's what happened to Thomas Lee, isn't it? Remember in your youth so you can avoid ending up like that. And he says, because there's going to be a day where you have no pleasure in those things. And, and he goes on to say, um, he goes on to say that this day is going to come when our desires will fail us. When our desires will fail us. Isn't that an interesting phrase? 
One day your desires themselves are going to grow so weak that they, they won't even muster up enough strength to, to want. And that's despair. In the dust, and he's saying, so remember your creator before all that happens and the dust returns to the earth because the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Remember the God who you will return to in death. And then it says the end of the matter, all has been heard, is this. So this is his, there's only one directive in the whole book. There's only one instruction. There's only one imperative. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of God. Fear God and keep his commands. There's a lot we didn't get to, but that's all right. I'll just end with this. The psalmists say, the Proverbs say, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God. If there's anything missing in our New Age secular culture, it's not actually God. There are gods aplenty. You can have whatever God you want. There's many gods as there are people in our country, in our way of thinking. And no one's allowed to tell you whether and what they think about your God. What is lacking in a secular culture, in a secular age, is not God. It is the fear of God. You know you have an idol when there is no fear of it, right? Because you're in control then. And you're not dealing with the God before whom you will give an account of your life, right? I mean, that, that evokes the proper response, which is fear. But listen, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. It's where we get started. It's how you know you're dealing with God and not some figment of your imagination. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and those who fear God have not been perfected in love. You begin with the fear of God to make sure it's really God you're dealing with, but you are fearing the one who wants to cast out fear from your life. Cast out not only fear of God in the misunderstood sense, but fear of this world, fear of other people's opinions, fear of failure, fear of, of death. You, you are called to the God who wants to cast all that fear out of you. And so you shouldn't be afraid of God. You should fear God. But don't be afraid of God because of judgment. Because we read this story on this side of the gospel. And on this side of the gospel, we know that the same God who taught Solomon the hard way about the emptiness of this world and the important thing in life, to fear God, that we have been revealed who this God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the same God who because we couldn't keep his commands perfectly, died for our sins so that those who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And, and yes, we would pass through the judgment, not by anything that we have done, not by a righteousness of our own, but through faith in Jesus. So 
you bring me a communion cup? So as we, oh, uh, yeah, give her a hand. She deserves it. Uh, as we prepare for communion, this is your preparation for judgment, okay? We approach the table of the Lord in the fear of God, only to discover the God that we fear is the one who came to be with us, who came to die for us, and came to reconcile us to himself because we couldn't keep his commands perfectly. And so I will invite you to respond to this God by taking out the bread, the wafer, and remembering that on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, take this and eat. This is my body. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, he took the cup and he said, this is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is what defines the relationship between us and God. You want to know what defines your relationship with God? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. All your sins are in that blood. You don't, aren't defined by your sins. You're defined by the blood of Christ. That's what defines your relationship with God. He said, this is the blood, the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for your sins. Take this and drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we give you thanks for the great gift of your grace. And I pray, Lord, as we continue in, <coughs> continue in this series that you would draw us deeper into, into a, a, a God-centered, God-oriented life. It's just so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to scroll through a news feed. It's so easy to think about so many other things and to grow distant from our soul. I pray that you would use this book to draw us back to you and get us back in tune with our soul and with our deepest longings because we don't have to be distracted knowing that you really can and do and want to satisfy those deep longings. So continue to disillusion us, I pray, and we'll continue to give you thanks for the joy we find in you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> well, one of the themes you probably are discovering about Ecclesiastes is this theme of impermanence, the transience of life. There's a time for hellos and a time for goodbyes. And right now we have to say goodbye, unfortunately, to two uh, families. So if I could have the Perez's and Braden Sparks come up. It's not lost on anybody here that this is a military community. And it, it only emphasizes a truth that would be true even if it weren't a military community, namely that we have each other in this life only for seasons. And our time together is precious. And uh, the Perez's and Braden, so they're unrelated, but they both happen to be in the military and both happen to be leaving us, unfortunately. Um, they both have been called out to, to bigger and better things. And, uh, and so we want to pray them out, send them out with our blessing and recognize that though there's impermanence in our particular local family, that there is permanence in the family of God. 
And that wherever you go, there will be the family of God waiting to receive you. And so we want to pray for them to find a, a community and to get involved. Uh, they've been involved here um, for a few years both in both cases. And bo- in both cases have helped with the second and third graders, Braden uh, has, and... Um, and Katie as well, and so, and they've been a part of this community, and so we just want to say we're going to miss you guys. We value your presence, uh, but we know that God has plans for you, and we want to send you out and empower you. You have a mission for this nation. You also have a mission for the kingdom, and so we want to pray you out in that spirit, so you could come over here. We're all one family right now, okay? And so if you're friends of, of either, come on up, and, uh, and we'll all just pray them out together. Friends, family, whoever. Okay. You can run, Debbie. Go for it. All right. And this will also be our prayer for the, for the meal uh, as we enter into the time of our fellowship feast. Let's pray together as a family. Father, thank you for the gift we have in one another. Thank you for the gift that we have in uh, each other's presence and the way that that you call us to invest in each other's presence and we can receive from one another's presence and efforts as we have in this, this community. We pray for Braden and for the Perez's, Lord, that as you send them out, Lord, that you would empower them by your spirit to see their highest mission and highest calling to invest in your kingdom. And we pray that you would give them treasures of the kingdom here and now, the treasures of love and joy and peace and the rest, that they would find that quickly in their new community that they're going to, that they would be plugged into a family of God, that they would be able to walk out their calling and flourish in their life and enjoy this life as they continue to do your will and seek uh, what you want for them. And so I pray you give us one great last time feasting together and uh, and that uh, we could just enjoy this time, this moment, because we have that. We have that much. Help us to enjoy it. Fill us with your joy in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.